know you, to be yours, and it's um, an additional delight of ours to be able to serve you. And Father, as we think about how to serve your people uh, this morning, Lord, we pray that you would help us, help us, give us insights, give us clarity, especially as we look at this song, Lord, to see in it wonderful things uh, that we may benefit ourselves from and also to help others. And Father, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is good to be with you this morning. Good to have my PowerPoint working. Um, and good to have you fresh. You know, this is like the, the sweet spot slot. Uh, 10 o'clock, man, you've had coffee. You know, it's starting to affect you now and you're ready to go. You've had one lecture down, I think, right? Um, now, it's always hard to follow Keith. Right? It's hard to get better than Keith Palmer. Um, but I'll do the best I can. I'll, hopefully, we'll spend most of our time in the book and the text which will rival Keith, whatever Keith said, as long as he was saying scripture. Uh, but I do want to talk to you about a very vital topic in counseling, and not just in counseling, but in life. You can see the title of the lecture is How to Make God Your Refuge, or On Making God Your Refuge. And what I want to do in the next hour is to walk through Psalm 16 and make some observations about how we can help other people take refuge in God. We use the language of refuge often. In fact, the language of refuge permeates the Scripture. Uh, but if you're like me, you've, you haven't really thought a lot about how do you do that. Yeah, of course, I, I should make the Lord my refuge. You should find refuge in God. But as, I mean, as biblical counselors, one of the things we ask all the time is, yeah, but how do you do it? Right? We don't want to just throw out platitudes. We, we want to be careful that we're not just using religious language that's like an empty shell. Uh, there's no substance to it, which is one reason why we're big on definitions. Don't just talk about repentance, but what does it mean? What does faith mean? Well, making your refuge in God, taking refuge in God, is one of those uh, sort of phrases that can become just an empty religious sort of platitude. And I want to help shatter that over the next hour by following David's example. Psalm 16 is a psalm you're all familiar with, but hopefully you'll be able to look at it with clearer vision after we've worked through it together. But before we get started, I want you to uh, think about the language of refuge in God. Uh, what are some places in Scripture that you can think of, uh, that tell us to take refuge or find refuge in God, or talk about God being a refuge? What are some that you can think of? Psalm 46 46 is the key one, at least key to me. That's the one I find myself quoting all the time. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble or in time of need. Yep. Can you think of another one? Well, actually, before we move on, What are some blessings that Psalm 46 tell us uh, that you get when you go to God for refuge? He's help in time of need or time of trouble. Anything else from Psalm 46? His presence. That's right. Stability, right? Though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved to the heart of the sea, right? Everything else is chaotic. But if you go to God as your refuge, you get stability. And you can be fearless. I love that line. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Why will we not fear? Because God is our refuge. What else? What other passages can you think of about uh, that reference God as a refuge? Psalm 62. Where does it, what does it say? Okay, Psalm 62 um, sounds a lot like Psalm 46. Yeah, maybe turn to Psalm 62 and read it for us. Just that section on refuge. Anyone else? Isaiah 57. I think I have that listed. Isaiah 46. What is Isaiah 57? Okay, what's the blessing there of finding refuge in God? 
Yeah, the inheritance of the promises. So all the all throughout Scripture, we see this um, sort of command uh, to find refuge in God. And the blessings in God are vast. And let me just give you a few that I thought you might not mention. Second um, Samuel 22, 2-3. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. Just note the stability. Rock, fortress, deliver, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield, the horn of my salvation. My stronghold, my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. What's the blessing there of finding refuge in God? Salvation from violence. Stability. Isaiah 57.13, we just looked at that one. Nahum 1.7, a great verse. This is a great verse to have counselees memorize. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of refuge, or in the day of trouble, rather, and He knows those who take refuge in Him. Great verse. Great verse. What's the blessing here that Nahum lays out and sort of sets it out there to entice you to go to God to find refuge? What's the blessing here? He's a stronghold. He's good. So you want to be with him. Why would you stay outside when the good God is in the fortress and you can go to him? What else? He knows you. He knows you. Wonderful. I mean, what does Jesus say is eternal life? John 17. That you might know him. And this passage says, well, he knows you. It's wonderful. Psalm 511 is a great, great little psalm, little verse. But let all who take refuge in you... Be glad. You got a counselee who is not glad. What are they not doing? There you go. There's a good diagnostic. Now, of course, we wouldn't apply that that simply to them and say, okay, well, here, look, just go find refuge in God. But if you take them to Psalm 16 like we're going to do, then you're going to help them find their gladness in God. We'll see that. Let them ever sing for joy. May you shelter them that those who love your name may exult in you. Benefits of finding refuge in God from Psalm 511. What do you see there? Gladness, joy, protection. He says, may they exult in you. This is like joyful exuberance. Wonderful. Psalm 34, 22, the Lord redeems the soul of his servants and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Okay, blessing of finding refuge in God. What is that? He redeems us so that what? No condemnation. Sounds a lot like what verse in the New Testament? Wonderful passage. You guys, you're, this is track three. You're doing counseling or you're doing a lot of intensive discipleship. You've got people, guys, gals, children to come to you and they feel condemnation. What are they not doing? Right. They're, they're not finding refuge in Christ. Right. So they're outside of the Lord and they're feeling the exposure of life outside of the refuge, the fortress that is Jesus Christ. And we get to hold them, take them by the hand and say, look, it's cold, it's wet, it's dreary, it's painful out there. Why don't you come in here where the Lord is? He will make you glad and He will rid you of all the condemnation. Let me tell you how that happens. This is what we have the high honor of doing. So those are just a couple of diagnostics. But the question, of course, is, you know, we don't have a physical door that we get to open and say, hey, come on in, here it is. How do we do that? How do we as counselors, disciples, Christians, how do we help people find refuge in God, come and take refuge in Him? Well, uh, there are a number of passages that we could go to to camp out on this, but I want us to look at Psalm 16. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there because we're going to reference it over and over again. Uh, Psalm 16. And I think this psalm is of particular help to us as we think about teaching our counselees and disciplees and counseling ourselves to take refuge in God. This is really a prayer 
uh, of David, if you look at verse 1, David says, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. Preserve me, O God. That's the prayer. It's really a command. It's in the imperative mood. So here's David giving a command to God. That's a little audacious, you'd say. Uh, But it's more like a petition. This is what we do in prayers of petition. God, would you help me to be gracious? Would you help me do what I need to do? And so David is praying here that God would preserve him, literally keep watch over him, just as a shepherd keeps watch over his sheep. Now you might say, David, don't you know that God is already keeping watch over you? Why are you asking God to do that? This is what we do in prayer, right? We, we call on God to do for us what He's already been doing for us, right? God is faithful. He doesn't need our reminder uh, to keep watch over us. But in prayer, we go to God and we take His promises to Him, just like Moses, and we lift those to Him. And we say, God, keep doing for me what You've always done for me. God has not changed. God is still taking care of David here. But who has changed? Maybe David has forgotten that God is the shepherd. Um, But here David is reminding himself and demonstrating to the Lord that he has not forgotten uh, that God is the great shepherd of his sheep. And so he's praying, God, preserve me, keep me, Guard me. But notice the grounds upon which David is making this plea for protection. First part, preserve me, O God, and then the word for. That's what the NASB says. Anyone else have something different? Preserve me, O God. Why? It's just sort of think along these lines. God, David is praying. David says, God, preserve me, keep me. And God says, why should I keep you, David? Why should I keep you, David? What, what have you done? Why, why should I come to your aid here, David, and help you? Well, of course, we could say the answer is, well, because of Christ, because of grace. But David says, do this for me, God, because or for I take refuge in you. Right? I've come to you and now I'm in your habitation. Right? The refuge is the fortress. I have, from my trouble, I have fled for refuge in you, God. So that's why I'm calling on you to protect me. That's the grounds upon which David is crying out for God's protection. He's basically saying, God, look, I have done my part. I'm not just sitting out here saying, Oh God, would you lift me up and transport me into the refuge that is your person and name. David is saying, I I have done something. I've done my part. I have taken refuge in you. Now, I resign myself fully into your care. You're in charge, God. This is your fortress. I'm in it now. Now the obligation for my protection is no longer on me. It's now fully entrusted to you. So now I'm just calling on you, God, to do what you said and promised you would do. So the rest of the psalm, verses 2 all the way to verse 11, I'm seeing as David's sort of articulation as to how he did this. Right? Verse 1, he says, I have done it. I take refuge in you. And then verses 2 through 11 are him saying, here's what I've done. Here's how I have taken refuge in you. All right, so that's how I'm going to approach this passage. And that's how you have it in your notes. So then the question for us is, how do we follow David's example and find refuge in God ourselves. And then next step is how do we help our counselees find refuge in God? David gives at least eight sort of steps to take towards refuge in God. Step number one. If we want to help our counselees, disciplees, help ourselves find refuge in God, the first thing we need to do is to help them confess God's sovereignty and goodness. By the word confess, by confess there, I mean the Greek word homologeo, which means to say the same thing. You agree with God that He is sovereign and that He is good. Look at verse 2. So David says, 
I take refuge in you. Verse 2, I said to the Lord, or Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, it's the covenant name of God, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. Usually when you're in the midst of trial, one of the first things that goes is your understanding of God's control and your understanding of God's goodness. Would you agree with that? So David here, right out of the gate, touches a nerve. That's helpful for us to see. David is intentionally confessing that in the midst of life, the diff- whatever difficult, we don't know the difficulty here that David's going through. We know there's pressure, there's challenges. And David right out of the gate is saying, God, I have taken refuge in you. And I'm identifying, I'm confessing rather, that you are the sovereign Lord. And not only that, but you are unbelievably good. Verse 2, he says, I have no good beside you. Every good thing in my life that I have pales in comparison to the goodness that I have in you. He says this, Yahweh, with the covenant name of God, you are my Lord. The word there is Adonai, which of course means master or ruler. So at the most basic level, David here is recognizing his place in God's economy. In other words, David's not in his trial, and he's not looking up at God and saying, what are you doing up there? How dare you bring this difficulty my way? Why could you do this? Or why did you do this? David's default here, and maybe it wasn't his default. Maybe he had to work himself up to this. Who knows? But he is convincing himself and he's confessing to God that God has the right to do with David whatever God wants to do. That's lordship. To be the Lord means that you have exclusive rights to do with your servants whatever you want to do. Now the good news for us is that our master, our Adonai, our Lord is unimaginably good. And he would never do anything to willingly cause us harm, hurt. Everything he does for us is good, even if it's sometimes behind a veil of difficulty. So David, right out of the gate, you are my Lord, you are the sovereign, I'm not in charge of my own fate. You're you're on the throne. A couple of verses to help us um, with this, as we think about how do we help counselees take refuge in God, they need to first confess God's sovereignty. Always it's a theological problem. Right? The struggle that comes, if they're outside of refuge in God, the pain, the hurt, the difficulty, of course, that's going to come. But if we're going to help them find refuge in God and have joy in the midst of suffering and pain, sorrow, they've got to first acknowledge the sovereignty of God. A couple of passages here to help. This is from Isaiah 46, verse 9 11. When I think about sovereignty, this is the verse I think about. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. In other words, you are not God. I am God. We gotta help our counselees get that. Right? Confess that God is God and I am not God. Just incidentally, you think about anxiety issues. This is someone trying to play God. And part of the way we help counselees get out of that anxiety is by helping them give to God what belongs to God and take ownership of their human responsibilities and not try to do God's job for Him. I am God and there is none like me. Verse 10. Just notice the language here. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure one of my favorite psalms psalm 153 our god is in the heavens and he tries to do all that he pleases no he does all that he pleases anything that you experience in your life has been filtered through the sovereign good god's hands anything uh, I've, I've heard it referenced as it's being father filtered right it's father filtered that means whatever comes 
comes because it's God's purpose being established. You think contextually here, this is a pretty painful decree that's about to unfold for the people of Israel. This is in Isaiah 46. They are about to go into captivity. And they are going to experience the trial, not just of a lifetime, the trial of uh, entire generations of people. This would be the biggest trial that Israel has ever walked through. And God is in charge. Another passage that's so helpful thinking about sovereignty is Lamentations 3, 37 to 38. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? So someone said, your mother-in-law, she said some things that were hurtful to you. Okay. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Where's God in the picture? Where is he? Those were hurtful, painful words, and that was sin for her to say that. But did that slip around God's throne? No, 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 no. You have to confess God's sovereignty in the midst of trial. Spurgeon was the the one who said, The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night. Why is that? You rest your head on that pillow, the sovereignty of God, because you know that whatever comes comes as an effect or a result of God's decree. The Lord says, Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned and surely I will do it. I love Daniel 4, where Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, finally confesses this. He says, I bless the Most High and praised and honor Him, Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among all the inhabitants of the earth. And notice this last line. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Why why did you do that? No one can say it. So step one here. David shows us that if you're going to take refuge in God, the first thing you need to do is you need to confess that He is truly the Sovereign. Not just the Sovereign, but notice the personal language of 16. I said to the Lord, You are the Lord. That's not the way. What does he say? You are my Lord. Personal language. You're my Lord. And there's no Lord equal to you. No one has meticulous sovereignty over my life like you do. No one does. But not only are you sovereign, you are also unimaginably good. One of the go-to passages on this is Psalm 119.68. You are good and do good. Isn't it amazing how the simplest verses to quote are often the hardest verses to live? You are good and you do good. Simple? I mean, it's that easy. Right? Oh, it's that simple, probably. Living that out is not easy, because why? Because when the pressure gets on, what do we start to do? We question God's sovereignty, and we question His goodness. And part of the ways we just sort of go to our counselee and say, Oh, brother, that is so hard. Let me show you some things in Scripture to help you understand what's going on. And we just take their hand, and we show, look, see the sovereign God in this passage? He's in charge. But notice, look, His goodness over here. He, nothing comes to you but through His loving hands. And you're sort of taking them into the fortress. Now, you're not getting them out of their problem, which is what counselees often want. We want that too. right? We come to someone for help. We're like, okay, Nancy, get me out of my problem because it's bad. They, we're looking for the easy button here. Okay, yeah, you hit that button and all is well. That's what most counselees want, want because that's what you and I want too. Usually we want a quick solution, a quick way out, but there's no easy button. God doesn't save us from our problems in this life. He gives us the resources we need to be like him in the midst of our problems, right? We want out of our problems. God says, no, I I may leave you in there, but here's what I'll do. I'll give you all you need to honor me in the midst of the trial. So we're bringing them into the fortress so that the bombs can come, the difficulties of life can come, but they can still sing because they are safe 
in the fortress of God. And you see probably the, I mean, is there a greater example of the goodness of God than Romans 8.32? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Right? Just underscoring the goodness of God. I have to move faster. This is the problem of my life. Um, so let me ask you, what are some practical ways that we can help our counselees and disciplees confess God's sovereignty and goodness? How can we help them to see the goodness and the sovereignty of God? What are some practical ways you can do that? Go ahead, brother. Uh, the history of Israel. Great example. Great. Dave, you're from where? Yeah, we met last year. Um, yeah, First Corinthians 10. And you said the history of Israel. If you go to First Corinthians 10, 13, it's a verse we all love and use in counseling all the time. No problem is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. If you look at verses 1 to 12, what is Paul using to demonstrate God's faithfulness? The history of Israel. It's a great example. What else? What else can we do to help them get into the refuge that is God by seeing His sovereignty and His goodness? Story of Joseph. Yep. Have them memorize Genesis fifty twenty. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. I mean, is there a, I mean, on the problem of evil, the difficulty of suffering, is there a more God centric, God sovereignty, God's goodness focused than Genesis fifty twenty? I, I don't know. Let me give you a couple of ways. Homework. Oftentimes, I think when we're giving homework, uh, we it's like we. We give all these sort of horizontal, go do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And we forget that all of our problems are essentially theological issues. So homework, A.W. Pink's The Attributes of God. Do you guys, if you don't know that book, if you don't have that book, you should buy it. Uh, short chapters on each, um, I mean, of the perfections of God, they're very short. Um, have them read on God's sovereignty and God's goodness. Jerry Bridges, Trusting God. That's a wonderful resource that you need in your life. You need to read it yourself. There's also a, a great little booklet on that. Um, Trusting God. Little booklet. It's condensed down into a really handy uh, resource so it's not as daunting for your counselee. Uh, relevant sermons. You've got, as your pastor preached a series on the perfections of God recently, boy, have them listen to a sermon. Assign the sermon, take notes on it, and be ready to discuss when you come back next week. Um, hymns, man, this is, for me, hymns are so helpful. Hymnody, if you can take a great hymn and help them to uh, memorize it, sing it through the week. One of my favorites on God's sovereignty and goodness is, um, oh, it's going to slip my mind right now. God moves in a mysterious way. Is it William Cooper, I think? God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of time, a never working skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. And this is the line that's so helpful. Ye feeble saints, feeble, weak, you feel feeble, you feel weak out there? Ye feeble saints, fresh courage take these clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Right? Feeble sense meaning, why could you do this? What, what are you up to? Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Boy, m- make your counselee memorize that. They'll be running and singing and singing and skipping throughout the rest of their days. And out of your counseling room, they're going to be happy. Why? Not because their su- situation has changed, but because they are now finding refuge in the sovereign and good God. Make sense? Okay. Number two, help them to be others oriented. So we want to help them to confess God's sovereignty of goodness and goodness, but we also want to help them be others oriented again what happens when the trial comes in life you question god's sovereignty you question his goodness and then if if you're like most people you sort of batten down the hatches and you say look i got to put my blinders on my life is falling apart i need to be focused totally on this one problem and maybe there's good to that if if someone has been pulled away from their responsibilities for a while but we tend to get so focused on ourselves and we forget that we ought to be 
others-oriented, which is why this verse 3 just strikes me. It seems so out of place. Look at verse 3. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. What does this have to do with refuge? What does this have to do with taking refuge in God? Well, I think what David is doing here is he's, of course, praying that God would keep him on the grounds that he sought refuge in God. He's confessing his goodness. He's confessing his sovereignty. And he's also saying, look, God, I'm not just living for myself here. Of course, I'm asking you to keep me safe, but I'm also others oriented. As for the saints in this land, your saints, to me, they are the majestic ones. That's the nobility. They're the ones whom I treat with the highest honor and respect. They're the ones I want to be with the most. And I'm, I'm doing all that I can as I'm being blasted by the trials in my life to serve them. It reminds us that as we're helping people make their refuge in God, fundamental to that process is helping them get their eyes off themselves. This is what we do. Trials come. We start thinking about myself, my misery, someone who's got chronic illness. Chronic illness is, is a dark, difficult providence from the Lord. There's no question about it. But someone, some, sometimes with chronic illness, you ask the person, hey, how are you? They're always going to go to what? Their chronic illness, their pain, right? They're always thinking about their life in terms of their struggle. And that's hard, and we shouldn't say judgmentally like, oh yeah, yeah, you're not taking refuge in God. No, we should see that as God's Marines, where we see a problem, we're jumping in to go take care of it. Right? So we hear our friend who's got a chronic illness, and we're, we're hearing them talking about their chronic illness a lot. Well, that starts to tell us is perhaps, maybe not absolutely, but perhaps this is the thing that's consuming them. Right? And they, we need to help them find refuge in God. We need to help them know God's sovereignty, His goodness. And help them to start thinking about, thinking in another direction, right? Take the spotlight off yourself and shine it on your others. We tell our kids this. Look, when you're talking to people in communication, the spotlight, you're trying to, you're kind of playing this game. You've got your spotlight and they're talking to you, right? The spotlight's on you at that point and you're getting to say all this stuff. You gotta make sure you turn the spotlight and shine it back on them and give them an opportunity to talk. You just wanna take all the, all the spotlight in the conversation. Same thing with trial. You turn inward. You got, we've got to help our counselees not grow their problem to this immense proportion where that's all they ever talk about and they never think about serving others. Here is David in the midst of trial and boy, he has top on his list. God's sovereignty and God's goodness and then God's people. That's what he's working on. So this is the idea here is to fight self-focus. Fight self-focus. Help counselees get their eyes onto others. This is fundamental to the Christian life, but we forget it in the midst of trial. Right? Jesus said, Mark eight thirty four. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He must deny himself. The word there is op or neomai. That'll be on the quiz. It means to refuse to acknowledge yourself. Refuse to acknowledge yourself. Now, do you get a free pass when the pressure is on in your life and life is really hard? You get a free pass for that? No, you don't. No, you don't. But that doesn't mean we look at someone who's in chronic pain and we say, look, you don't have a free pass. Get over it. You better take up your cross. Come on. You think about Isaiah 40. It talks about the Lord's tenderness. Isaiah 40, verse 11. The Lord's, the Lord's tenderness with the nursing lamb. Right? The you who has a little lamb with her. He doesn't drag her along and say, come on, get it together. Look, we gotta get here. No, the Lord with His powerful, mighty arm scoops them up and gently deals with them. That's the way we have to deal with counselees, friends. Help them to see, look, God has called you to stop thinking about yourself and think about others. A series of questions that I learned from Dr. Street, Dr. John Street, uh, is so helpful for me, is this. You've got a problem. You've got some sort of major issue. Let me ask you three questions. Um, 
Could God heal you of this disease? Absolutely He could. Has God healed you of this disease? No. Third question. What does He want you to do about it? What does He want you to do? Trust Him. Now, that doesn't mean you don't go try to find a cure. You should. But if your search for the cure nullifies Mark 8.34 in your life, well, now you're, you're, you're getting into the territory of you're out there finding your own refuge. right? And that's a dangerous place to be. So, has God healed you? Could God healed you? heal you? What does He want you to do about it? We've got to help our counselees be others-oriented. So what are some ways we could do that? How do we help people be others-oriented? Memorize Mark 8.34. That's a great one. Serve. We help them serve. Let me give you a few. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Stuart Scott's little booklet, 31 Ways to, to Be a One Another Christian. Uh, there are something like 35 one another's in the New Testament, and what Dr. Scott has done is he's condensed those and put them into a little book. I, I put, um, I think if you look at the back of your notes, flip on the back there, there should be a, a sort of PDF scans of the, uh, yeah, there you go. So that's from his book, The Exemplary Husband. That's a, a, a synopsis of those one another passages. So how do you help people be others-oriented? Oh, man. Take that little um, chart there and get to work. Have them implement a one another every week at church. Chronic illness, some painful issue? Look, here's what I want you to do. You don't even have to address the fact that they seem to be kind of inward. You don't have to even address that. You just start telling them what they need to be doing to live outwardly. And then all of a sudden, God's people are going to realize, oh yeah, that's how I should have lived all along. Right? So you give them a one another a week to do, or one another a month maybe. When you go to church this week, I want you to bear with someone. I want you to be kind to someone. That means you have to smile, even though you're in pain. That means you have to ask questions about other people, even though you want to talk about your pain. Uh, that means you have to serve someone in, in whatever capacity you can. Alright, you get the point. Alright, we've got to move on. Number four, how do we help people find refuge in God? We help them to be faithful to God. Now you may say, well, that could go without saying. Well, David says it. That's why I'm saying it. Look at verse four. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I will not or shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Another temptation in trial, life is hard, is to try and escape or try to compromise on our faithfulness to God, trying to get pain alleviated by whatever means necessary. David had been tempted by uh, to do this by friends. If you flip back to Psalm 11, just one page or two. Psalm 11, another passage on uh, God being a refuge. Psalm 11, uh, David says... In the Lord I take refuge. Indicative statement. This is reality. This is what I do. I take refuge in God. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, David, what can the righteous do? David says, I take refuge in God. How in the world can you come to me and say, hey, look, it's getting really serious, David. You better go somewhere else. You need to flee like a bird to the mountains. Get up high in the mountains. They can't get you. Because if they if they get you, David, we're all in trouble. David says, how in the world can you say to me, go flee to another refuge when I take refuge in God? You see that? That's faithfulness. Faithfulness to God. Faithfulness to God doesn't look like running and hiding. Now, sometimes you don't want to be a fool. Someone's after you. Yeah, go hide. You know, that, that would be foolish of you just to take it. But David here is not talking about physical fleeing. He's talking about the soul. How can you say to my soul, he says, 
Flee like a bird to your mountain. Look, I have a refuge and his fortress is impenetrable. Uh, and he's the sovereign king. No one, no, no arrow can come and penetrate my armor, my body, my heart, unless the sovereign God oversees the flight of that arrow. He's in charge of all of it. So why would I run from anything? And David's resolve is to be faithful because, look, he knows back in chapter 16, you go bartering for another God? What's going to come from that? Sorrow. The way of the transgressor is hard. Proverbs 13, 15. David's no fool. Why would I go looking for to see what some other God could do? No, I, I have a refuge. He is the one true God, and I worship Him. I live for Him. So in as we're helping counselees find refuge in God, we need to help them to be faithful to God. As we're sort of walking them in, we, we have to keep our eyes on the reality that their, their temptation will be to go look outside of God for what God alone can give. This is where an understanding of heart idolatry is helpful. Um, if you think about this heart here, um, now I, this is primarily used, I, I counsel mostly men, which is why you'll see one of those um, idols there. But just think about it this way. The man is the center of his heart, center of his life. Right? He lives for himself. He does all that he does for himself. So he uses um, sports to please himself. He was upset last night that the Rangers lost. Um, he's using sports for himself. He's using uh, pleasure, recreation, all that just to please himself. He wants to make a lot of money. Why? So then he can please himself. He uses women or uses men just to please himself. Comfort. I want comfort. That's the thing I want. Why do I want comfort? Not just because I love comfort in and of itself. No, I love comfort because I love me. And I love making myself comfortable and pleased. Control. I want to be the king. Why? Because I love me. And I love my ideas. You should love them too. And I'm angry with you that you don't love them. Right? When you don't get what you want, um, you flee in anger, fear, and anxiety to these other refuges. So imagine something of vice pushing on that heart and it's threatening that man's idol of control. And all of a sudden he's thinking, maybe I might lose control. Well, how does that make him feel? Angry, fearful, anxious. Anytime you're angry, fearful, anxious, you could most of the time you can trace that back to some heart idol issue. And so what does he do? He can't get what he really wants to be in control, so he escapes to a false refuge He gets drunk, he drinks, he takes drugs, he just sleeps away his pain. He's trying to find some sort of way to please himself. That's not the thing he really wants. It's like a settling. It's a false savior. Uh, Shopping, pornography is there. I can't get what I really want. I really want to be with a woman. I can't really get that, so I'll go to pornography. It's a settling. So we have to help people see these things And know, in the midst of the pressure of life, we know if they're going to these false refuges, so they're going to alcohol over and over again, why are they doing that? Well, the world is going to say, well, it's because they're genetically disposed to that. And we're going to say, no, no, no. Well, maybe. Who knows about that? But what we do know is that that's a false refuge, and it's sinful for them to do that. But let's show you another way. Look, come here. I love you, brother. Let me take you to the refuge that is God. All these other gods that you're pursuing, brother, they are going to only multiply your sorrows. Let me show you the real God, how superior he is to everything else. All right? So what you want to do is you want to cut down this guy at the center of his life and put God there, where now he lives and all that he does is for the glory of God. Does that make sense? I know I'm moving really quickly. Uh, So how do we help someone with that? Well, a thought list is a great way to do that. Uh, by thought list, this is what I mean. I don't, this, I don't have time to go into all the details there, but a thought list is essentially what's the sinful temptation? Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's fearing men. I fear men. That's the sinful temptation, right? So when they fear people, they try to escape. They don't want to talk to people, so they run away from people, right? So they're trying to find refuge in some false refuge. We want to help them. Look, you don't have to be afraid of people. By God's grace, First John 4, you can love people. You don't have to run for them in fear. So how do we help them with that? A thought list would be something like this. With God's help, I will love people and not fear people. 
Proverbs 29, 25. And you have them memorize that sentence and the verse. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The language of refuge again. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. 1 John 4, perfect love casts out fear. So rather than fearing people, I resolve with God's help to love them today. That's a thought list. Uh, read on heart idolatry. The exemplary husband stewards God. It's a great chapter. Chapter 7. The excellent wife. Chapter 7. And there's a great article Lou Going has in Modern Idolatry. The Journal of Biblical Counseling. It's a great little article. Um, but we have to move on. Any, any questions about that before I just run on too quickly? I'll be here afterwards. Do we know what time the next... Oh, look at it. It's right in front of me. 10.15... We've got nine minutes. This is supposed to be over it. Wow. Okay, we'll move quick. Help them to recognize reality. Look at verse 5. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. Now that's reality. That's reality. They think what happens in trial is we often start to think things that aren't true. We start to view them as being reality. So we believe lies. Put that another way, a simpler way. We believe lies. Well, we want to bring the Word of God to bear to show them what is really real, if you will. What is true? God determines reality. My pain doesn't determine reality. My problem doesn't determine reality. My feelings don't determine reality. God determines reality. And David here is saying, the Lord, uh, maybe I'll lose everything. Maybe it's all going to be gone. But the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. That's just another way of saying that everything that comes my way is in God's hands. The reality is that even though David may be losing his inheritance on earth, you think of a couple times in David's life where that was threatened. He doesn't have to fight to preserve his earthly inheritance. Why is that? Because he has a superior inheritance in the Lord. You see that? The Lord is the portion of my inheritance. So I'm not bickering with you about uh, my cut in my uh, inheritance from my deceased loved one. Look, I have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for me. Now, I, I want to be a faithful steward of what's being entrusted to me. And I don't want to be naive and I don't want to be a fool. But ultimately, I can deal with this situation with freedom and peace because I have an inheritance that's perfect and it's way better than this earthly allotment. Right? And on top of that, I don't have to maneuver to get mine. Why? Because the last line, you support my lot. That means God is in charge of all of it anyway. The lot being um, my life. All of this, every detail of my life is all structured by the Lord. So what David is doing here is he's reminding himself of what is really real. Saying the truth, speaking the truth to cut out the lie. Lamentations 3, 21 to 22 is a great section. Actually, it goes to 32. I think it's a typo. Um, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Now, does Paul see that eternal weight of glory that's right in front of him? No. No, this is why he says, We look not at things which are seen, but at things which are not seen. The danger in trial is all you see is what's right in front of you. The pain, the difficulty, the hurt. The Christian transcends that and is able to see the unseen. As counselors, disciples, boy, we have the high honor of helping people transcend that and see what only the Christian can see, to see reality. And that's what David is doing here. So here's some uh, homework. Memorize problem-specific verses. Right, Bring God's Word to bear on each one of these circumstances. What is the, the lie they're believing? I'm going to lose my earthly inheritance. Oh, take them to Psalm 16, verse 5. No, you're not. You may lose this little land allotment. But look, the Lord is your inheritance. 
Show them heaven. Show them what's coming for the Christian. That helps you transcend this light momentary affliction. All right. Help them to fight for contentment in God. That's verse number 6. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. Interesting phraseology there. Uh, It's really verse 5 and 6 are very connected. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance. Verse 6, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. This is um, real estate language. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Maybe my brother got the creek, you know, the hundred acres, and he got the creek, and it's really wonderful, and I really wanted that. Okay, but look, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Right? My inheritance is beautiful. My heritage is beautiful to me. No matter what's happening in, in this physical world, I have a pleasant heritage And the reality is is that the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. So David may be losing it all, but he's able to be content because he's finding his satisfaction in God. What is his inheritance? Verse 5, Yahweh. So there he says, of course, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. How could it get better for me? How could it, literally, how could it get any better for me? I have God. And we're going to see at the end of the psalm, uh, in his presence, his fullness of joy. Right? Okay, we're going to move quickly. Psalm ninety fourteen. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Our job is to help the counselee fight for contentment and satisfaction in God. How do we do that? Well, we uh, teach them to go through... Here's some homework... We give them a Thanksgiving's blessing list, catalog all these Thanksgivings, the things you're grateful for, and don't just stop there. These blessings are so that you can go through them to the giver of the gift. That's what we have to help them with. If you just say, make a Thanksgiving and blessing list, they're going to do it, and they're going to be encouraged, and they're going to be a little happier because they're going to say, oh yeah, yeah, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places indeed. But they're still earthbound. right? They haven't transcended and said, oh, wow, the lines have fallen in pleasant places for me indeed, because Yahweh is my inheritance. Right? He's the one that I'm after. And look, he's given me all these wonderful gifts, and I go through them to worship him. Daily prayer, singing hymns, um, steep them in the gospel. Gospel primer, you guys use that? You're aware of that? Great little booklet, or the book, the full form. Again, study the character of God. These problems are theological. Of course, there are practical problems that you have to deal with. But ultimately, these are theological issues. Set God before them. That's what we get to do, guys. It's wonderful. We get to set the living God before a willing and ready audience. And they're just hungry. They're just ready to be taught, usually. And we get to do it. All right. Uh, then we help them to prioritize and praise God for His Word. Look at verse 7. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. In other words, David is saying, look, I'm going to praise God because He's given me His Word. I'm meditating on it all the night, that in the middle of, so much so, all day and night, so much so that in the middle of the night, when I'm anxious about my problem, what is David thinking about? The counsel of Yahweh. Why? Well, he wouldn't be doing that if he had not been prizing the Word of God uh, up to that point. So we help them prioritize and praise God for His Word. Biblical counseling, this is what we get to do. I love being able to say, that first session with the counselee, I love this. Being able to look at them and say, after I've listened to all their problems, and they're, you know, they're, they're all on the table, and it's so ugly and difficult, I love being able to say, look, John, I, I don't have the solution to your problem in myself. But I know where the solution is. And I get to take you to the, to the solution here. And I'm going to show you, God says, that's a lot of stuff, a lot of difficulty we'll have to work through, but God has answers to every one of your problems. And then we get to take them to the answer. It's amazing. It's amazing. All right, regular Bible intake, meditation. By that I mean not, you know, this sort of Eastern mindlessness. You're musing on Scripture. You're, you're thinking, you're memorizing 
the Word of God. All right, help them, verse 8. This may be the, the, the most important verse in the whole uh, psalm. Verse 8. David says, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. How do you take help, counsel, find refuge in God? You help them to remember the Lord. Uh, it especially makes sense if you realize the word remember in Hebrew means to call to mind. To call to mind. Now, that's something that you have to do. Look at, look at verse 8. I have set the Lord continually before me. David's not praying, God, will you set yourself before me? That's what our counsel Lee wants God to do. Right? He wants God to just sort of swoop in and arrest all of his attention. That is not the way you take refuge in God. You have to take refuge in Him. Meaning you have to get out from, you know, have to go from where you are into the refuge that is God. And the way you do that is by constantly throughout your day calling God to mind. Setting God continually before you. You see that? It's wonderful. So then you get to do that. You get to set God before your counselee. How do you do that? Biblical meditation, prayer. Always say three times per day. It kind of sounds like the uh, doctor, you know, take this three times a day with food. Um, prayer, three times per day, right? In the, in the very early season, right? And that's not in our prayer. That's making sure you're praying at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Read your Bible. Memorize Scripture three times per day. Take Psalm 46, verse 1. Read it three times a day this week. Write it on a note card. Don't think about anything else. Think about this reality. God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear. That's what I want you to memorize. Three times a day. Why three times? Not because it's a miracle or you know some sort of magical formula, but because you're trying to set God continually before them in such a way they don't even know what you're doing. You're, you're trying to train them to do that without them even knowing what's happening. Uh, commutes. Uh, help them. Remind them. Look, listen to godly music. You want to set God before yourself continually? You've got to be continually renewing your mind and doing things creatively to take in the Word. All right, let me give you the last thing here. Help them to realize the result of taking refuge in God. And you could say the folly of not taking refuge in God. Right? It, it, look at the rest of the psalm. Therefore, so here's my conclusion. My heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also dwell securely. For, no, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So here is God in the refuge, right? He's in the fortress, and He's saying, Come in. Come in. You come in, I'll make your heart glad. You come in, I'll make your glory rejoice. That's your whole being. right? Your flesh will dwell securely. Your outer man and your inner man. That's your whole body. That's everything. That's um, inner man, outer man. Four, this is what you have to help your counselee believe. God will not abandon your soul to Sheol. Nor will he allow your holy one, nor will you allow your holy one to undergo decay. That's inner man, outer man. God is going to keep you holistically. Now your outer man is going to waste away. There's nothing to do against that. You know, you've, that's sin. That's the consequence of sin. But boy, your inner man can be renewed. And if you come to God and find your refuge in him, you know that your outer man and your inner man are going to be wisely shepherded and protected. You will make known to me the path of life and your presence is fullness of joy and your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So look, you got a counselee that's out there, miserable, trying to find pleasure in all these false refuges, false gods. You get to say, look, come, come, come here. I love you. I'm glad you're here. Um, and I'm really happy to help you. Uh, but let me show you a superior refuge to all that you think you can get out here. And all that you think you can get in yourself. Come to the refuge that is God. Right? Confess Him as sovereign and good. Abandon your own pursuits of self-righteousness. Find refuge in Him and you will find fullness of joy. Because where God is, that is where joy, protection, flourishing is found. Okay, much more to be said, but I've already stole uh, five minutes from you. So let me pray for you guys. I'll be down here if you want to talk.
Father, thank you for this opportunity uh, to look at Psalm 16. And I pray, Lord, for each one of these counselors, disciples, Lord, that you would help them, first and foremost, take refuge in you themselves, and then beyond that, be able to take your word and help lead counselees into you, into your name, which we're reminded that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and is safe. Help us, Lord, to do the same. Amen.